0: Welcome to week 11 now, almost at the end of this series, we're going to end on Easter Sunday, but welcome to week 11 of our series from Mark's Gospel account that we've called The Way of Jesus. Uh, Tried to reiterate this on the front end, but the the, the heart behind this series is that there's a tendency in all of us um, to try to decide for ourselves who Jesus is, and we emphasize the parts that we like, that agree with us, we kind of cut out the parts or ignore the parts or set aside the parts that challenge us that we don't like. And what we're left with is a Jesus that's created in our image, a Jesus that is remarkably easy to follow. The problem with that Jesus is that he cannot change us and he cannot heal us in any of the ways that we need to be changed and healed because that Jesus does not exist. He is simply a projection of ourselves. And so what we need most foundationally if we want to be transformed by Jesus Christ is the real Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel account. So let me read the passage we're going to spend some time in this morning. It's chapter 8, verse 27, and we'll go all the way to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, Jesus asked them again, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter 9, verse 1, then Jesus said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. This is God's Word. <clears throat> so I mentioned last week that what we're looking at here is, is really the pivot point in Mark's Gospel account, because up to this moment, the first eight chapters of Mark's Gospel are really designed to raise the question, and, and it sort of all boils down to this question. Uh, the question is, who exactly is Jesus? And uh, this moment is, is really where that question is explicitly asked and answered. And because this is such a significant moment in the life of Jesus, we decided to, to spend two weeks here Last week, we focused more on the the miracle story that takes place just prior to this exchange. This week, we're going to focus more uh, primarily on this exchange and the content therein. And what we find here is that um, Jesus, what we're told is that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of your versions translate that the Christ. It comes from a Greek word that's actually a title. And what it means is the anointed king or the true king, the king of kings, the ultimate king, the final king, however you want to phrase that. And that was, in no uncertain terms, uh, really good news, Uh, not, not only for Peter but for all the disciples. Because like all of us, they had their preconceived notions about the kind of king that Jesus would be and the shape that their lives would take as they followed Jesus the king. But... Uh, immediately after acknowledging that that's accurate, that Jesus actually is the Messiah, Jesus does what he so often does, which is shatters the expectations that people attempted to saddle him with. And without saying anything more about that, we're going to walk through this passage, and I just want to draw out two themes during our time together. Uh, First off, we're going to look at um, what kind of king Jesus is, And then secondly, we're going to look at what we have to go through, what we have to go through if we want to follow this king. So first and foremost, what kind of king is Jesus? He answers that question for us in verses 31 and 32. It says, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So first off, Jesus refers to himself here as, as something called the Son of Man. That's a reference to a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 7, uh, which points forward to a day when a divine figure would arrive on earth and establish a kingdom that would essentially set right everything that is wrong with this world. That's the Son of Man. Jesus is calling himself that here. But notice that Jesus says, the Son of Man, first thing he says about himself as the Son of Man is that he must suffer. And that seems really obvious to us coming to this passage 2,000 years later. But at this moment in history, as Jesus uttered these words out loud for the first time, and and this has been the case for Mark's readers of this account for the first time, what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing two ideas that had never previously been brought together in history. Uh, This idea that a Messiah... Who suffered, not only did that not make sense, but it was considered, it it was deeply wrong, not only in the ears of of Peter, but to all the disciples and really all of God's people, because the Messiah was supposed to come down here and make everything uh, right in this world by defeating evil and injustice. So the question in their minds is well, how on earth could the Messiah defeat evil if he himself is defeated? This is exactly why Peter actually took Jesus aside and began to rebuke the Son of God because what he was hearing from Jesus' mouth was literally cutting across the grain of everything that he had been raised to put his hope in, everything that his people, God's people, had put their hope in literally for centuries prior to this moment. But notice that Jesus doesn't just say here, this isn't just a prophecy about what will take place. Jesus is not just saying that, that he will suffer, he's saying he has to, he must it's absolutely necessary. In other words, the the teaching here is is Jesus is saying that as the Messiah, he's saying there is absolutely no way that he can renew this world. There's absolutely no way that he can renew your life unless he suffers and dies. So let's ask a question um, that may sound obvious, but I don't think it is. Why? You hear me say this all the time, we are, are living, and, and, and again, this was not the case even, even one generation ago in our culture, but we are living in a culture that is increasingly becoming um, secular and post-Christian. And one of, the, um, one of the effects of that is that for more and more people in the culture that we live in, the idea of God, the concept of God is foreign, the concept of sin is foreign, the concept of mankind requiring forgiveness is foreign. So you tell people that, that we need a Savior to die for our sins so that we can be forgiven and, and made right with God. That's, a, that's an idea that even, even 50 years ago people would have grasped whether or not they believed the Bible or they called themselves a Christian that today just kind of draws a lot of question marks in people and, and, and leads to a lot of questions for people. And so I want to take a few minutes on the front end of our time together answering the question, why is it that Jesus had to suffer and die? So if you're a Christian, this is going to be great for helping you Um, be able to communicate a little bit more about why you believe what you believe. But if you're here today, as I know some of you are, and you're trying to figure out if you believe Christianity or what you believe about Christianity, you wouldn't necessarily say you're all in, but you're curious, these next few minutes are are hopefully going to be really helpful in helping you understand why it is that we believe what we believe. And I want to answer this question in three ways. Why did Jesus Christ, why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? Three answers to that question. First off, it was necessary for our personal transformation, Here's what I mean by that. The Bible teaches that by our design, as relational creatures created in the image of a relational God, that we are, we are actually designed to be satisfied by a love relationship with God. I'm reading a book right now called The Dark Night of the Soul, and here's how the author phrased this idea. He said, God is love, and God creates every person out of love and because of love for the purpose of love. We may be unaware of it, but we are all born with a natural and lifelong yearning for the fulfillment of love. Uh, This is one of the reasons that that I believe the Bible so much. Because you you look out in the world at, at, for instance, secularism as a worldview. Secularism has no good answer to why it is that love is the primary thing that makes human life um, meaningful why we are in so much pain apart from that. The Bible explains that very easily. It's because we are relational creatures designed in the image of a God who is himself love. The problem presented to us in in just the third chapter of the Bible is that because sin has severed our relationship with God, what's happened in effect is we have been cut off from the love for which we have been made. And what we all do in response to that, whether or not we have the security to admit it, in various ways, what we all do having been cut off from a relationship with God and his love, is we look to other people to meet that need for us. Now psychologically, that's referred to as codependency. Theologically, that's referred to as idolatry. However you want to refer to it, it's unfair. Because what that is, is that's us asking another human being to meet a need that they are incapable of meeting in us. It manifests itself all kinds of ways, but I thought it would be helpful to walk us through Um, how this manifests itself in marriage. So you thought you were just going to get a dumb old sermon today, got marriage counseling thrown in for free, all right? This is from a book I just finished called Sacred Fire. It says, in our adolescent years, we are lonely. But that loneliness is still part of an innocence, idealism, and yearning that believes that someday we will find a great love who will take our loneliness away. Let me just pause. Uh, what, he's, what he's saying there is that we all start out in life believing that there's this person out there that when our life is connected to their life, then we'll never feel lonely again because that person's gonna meet our need for love in, in, in a way that, that uh, we're, we're finally gonna feel okay. Uh, I recently heard a pastor named John Mark Comer say, and I, I completely agree with him, he said that one of, if not the greatest lie that specifically young, single people tend to believe is that once you get married, you'll never feel lonely again. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Uh, There's not an honest married person alive, just on behalf of married people everywhere, there's not a married person alive who has not struggled with loneliness even after they were married, and that's not because their marriage was bad. That's not because their spouse was bad. It's because another human being does not have the ability to take away your loneliness. Let me start over. Getting your money's worth today. <laughs> it says, In our adolescent years, we're lonely, but that loneliness is still part of an innocence, idealism, and yearning that believes that someday we'll find a great love who will take our loneliness away. That yearning, the author asserts, that yearning drives us outward, and when we do find love during the course of the honeymoon... It does take our loneliness away. But all honeymoons end. Not because they are unreal or false, but because they eventually do their work. Simply put, during a honeymoon, we are not truly in love with an individual person. We are in love with love itself. Can you imagine if I said that at the next wedding I (laughs) officiated? Just you you two don't love each other, but let's get on with the vows. You imagine that? He gives an example. He says, for example, the young Jack who falls in love with the young Jennifer. And I'm laughing because when I was putting this together, I was thinking, man, what if there is a Jack and (laughs) Jennifer that shows up to church that this is not about you, Jack and Jennifer. I'm sure you have a great marriage. I didn't write this. says, for example, the young Jack who falls in love with the young Jennifer is not at this stage in love with her, though he thinks and feels he is. He's in love with love itself. But in the end, Jennifer is just a singular, individual woman. She all alone cannot carry all that Jack is seeing in her. She alone cannot take another person's loneliness away. Thus, no matter how good the honeymoon and no matter how good Jennifer, eventually reality will break through and Jack will see and realize that he married one singular, limited human being. This will necessarily cause a certain amount of disillusionment in him, which, while laden with some dangers, is a good thing. He has not fallen out of love with Jennifer, but with his own fantasy of love. The author goes on and explains that from that moment forward, whenever it hits, and it hits for every marriage... Every, not even just marriage, it, 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 it hits in our relationship with everything, every new career, every new place we move to, every new subject that we take up. There's always a honeymoon period and all of the new things that we have in life. But specifically with marriage, the author goes on and says, when that, that period hits and the, and the honeymoon's over, there is a choice to be made. Either you choose to commit to and love your spouse for who they are rather than how they make you feel. Or you do what so many people get locked into, which the author calls you begin the search for the second honeymoon in all the myriad ways that that manifests itself. That example that I read to you obviously narrowly aims at marriage, but the point that I'm driving at is we can apply that in all relationships. None of us, this is probably a hard thing to admit maybe, but if we're honest, none of us have the ability to truly demonstrate perfect love to another human being Because we're too starved for love ourselves. None of us have the ability to truly live to meet the needs of another human being because we're too needy ourselves. We can't truly empty ourselves out for another human being because we're too empty ourselves. And it's been that way since Genesis chapter 3. So what the Bible is doing in just the first three chapters, this is why I believe the Bible even more than I used to. It just makes more sense of what I see out in the world than anything else I've ever come across. What the Bible's doing for us in just the first three chapters is it's painting this picture that humanity as a race, our condition is fundamentally this. We are starved for love, incapable of giving it to others, but demanding that others give it to us. And you don't have to be Dr. Phil to realize that's not going to work. So what we need, just relationally speaking, is we need someone from outside of us who needs nothing from us To love us with a one-way, vulnerable, radical, unconditional, life-changing love that that meets our needs, meets our hunger for love to the point that we can then uh, begin loving and serving others, not in order to get our needs met from them, but because our needs have already been met by another. And the only person, according to the word of God, that can love you with that kind of transformative love is Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that that Jesus, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus hated the cross. There was no kind of stoic, you know, it is what it is. Jesus despised the cross, but he endured it for one reason, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. And I don't know if you've ever been told this before, but that joy that was set before Jesus was you. The one thing that Jesus did not have before the cross that he could only get through the cross was you. And so Jesus died on the cross not to get anything from you, but to get you. That's perfect love. And the whole idea behind Christianity is that when a human heart begins to experience that kind of love in more than an intellectual way, it begins to come home then a human heart begins to grow in the ability to reflect that same love to everyone else. And this is a, please don't miss, this is a uniquely Christian idea. Every other religion begins with what we have to do for God. Christianity alone, as its foundation, begins with what God has done for us. And what God has done for us is he demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, driven by a one-way, radical, unconditional, life-changing love. So the first reason that, that Jesus' death uh, and his suffering was necessary is for our personal transformation. Now that, um, taken by itself, that might sound kind of fluffy or sentimental to you. And so that's, I'm, I'm happy to say, that's not the only reason that it was necessary. Right? The, the second answer to this question, why, why was it necessary? It was necessary for our, not just our personal transformation, but for our legal justification. Here's what I mean by that. When someone wrongs you, uh, there's always a debt that has to be paid. Economically, this is really easy to grasp. If somebody comes over to your house and, say, destroys your lamp, then you have two options. You make them pay for what they've done, or you choose to forgive them, and in which case you pay for what they have done. Meaning you either pay for the lamp yourself by replacing it and buying a new one, or you pay by going without a lamp. Uh, But either way, the debt doesn't just go away. Someone has to absorb the cost. This is really easy to grasp on an economic level, but it doesn't just work on an economic level. Because when somebody wrongs you in an intangible way, uh, but, but in some ways a, a, a much more painful way, meaning, and, and I know some of you, I'm sure, have gone through this. Maybe you're going through this right now. When somebody, for instance, robs you of an, of an opportunity, when they rob you of, of uh, happiness, when they rob you of your reputation, when they rob you of your peace of mind, if you've been on the other side of that, you know that when that happens, there's a sense that there's a debt that must be paid. It's not as tangible as an economic debt, But it's no less real. And again, there are only two things that you can do. On the one hand, you can make them pay for what they've done to you. You can, in return, try to rob them of an opportunity, of happiness, of their reputation, of of their peace of mind. The problem with going down that path is the further you go down it, the more it changes who you are and you become more like the person that wounded you. And it's from this concept that we get the phrase that hurting people hurt people. And they create other hurting people who hurt more people and the cycle never stops. It never ends. The other option you have when you're in that situation is you can actually choose to forgive the person that hurts you. But when you do that, and anybody listening to me right now who's actually gone through the, the, the difficult work of forgiving somebody who has wronged you knows what I'm about to say is true. When you make the decision to forgive someone who has wronged you, what you are doing is you are choosing to suffer. Because forgiveness at its core, if you haven't done this, biblically speaking, you have not forgiven. Forgiveness at its core is about you absorbing the cost of what someone else has done to you rather than making them absorb that cost themselves. So again, use a marriage analogy. If your spouse does something to wound you, then when you choose to forgive them, which is as much a one-time event as it is a process— Every single time you refuse, when another argument comes up, every time you refuse to throw back in their face what they did to you so that you can kind of twist the knife a little bit more, every time you refuse to rehearse in your mind how they wounded you and churn with bitterness all over and fantasize about how they're going to get theirs one day, every time you refuse to go to other people and destroy their reputation, every time you refuse to do that, what you are doing is you are essentially choosing to suffer for them. And so my point is, when you're wrong, there's only two options. You either make the person who wronged you suffer or you choose to suffer yourself. Either way, the debt does not just evaporate. It doesn't just go away. Someone has to suffer. Now, this leaves a lot of questions about what about justice and what about reconciliation. This isn't a teaching about that, so we've got to say that for another time. Where I'm going with this is simply this. If, if, if that's how it works on an individual level in, in human terms, that the only way for there to be forgiveness is if there's suffering on the part of the person who's choosing to forgive, if we understand that that works in human relationships, why should we be surprised that it works between God and humanity? Why should we be surprised when God says, the only way that I can forgive you is if I choose to suffer? Biblically speaking, God had two options the day that we walked out on him in Genesis chapter 3. He could let us suffer, which he would have been absolutely justified in doing, or he could have chosen to suffer for us so that he could forgive us, which is exactly what God has decided to do in the person and work of Jesus. And what Jesus is going through on the cross is what we go through on an individual level except Jesus is going through it on an ultimate, on an infinite, on a cosmic level as he takes the sins of the world on himself. So secondly, the second reason Jesus' death and suffering was necessary was for our legal justification. But but the third, and this will be the last reason that that I offer to you, that, that it was necessary is for our final liberation. This idea is the hardest for me to articulate. Um, So hopefully what I'm trying to get across here is clear, but admittedly, I only got seven days to put these together. I'm giving you what I got. So what do I mean? In Colossians 2.15, Colossians 2.15 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, really kind of cryptic statement, Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities or the powers and the principalities, some versions say. Commentators will tell you that that's not talking about physical human rulers and authorities. It's talking about demonic rulers and authorities. That's what Jesus disarmed on the cross. In other words, on the cross, what Jesus effectively did is he conquered the forces of evil that had power over us, that have power over us outside of him. In other words, he essentially overturned and he defeated the value system of this world that outside of Jesus enslaves us. So let me try to walk through what that means. Uh, when I talk about the value system of the world, this is what I mean. No matter what time or place or culture you're born into, um, the world teaches us to value things like, like power and glory and recognition and fame and, and all those kinds of things. It, it basically, the world, the value system of the world teaches us to live for ourselves and to accrue as much of those things as we can. People do that on autopilot, no one needs to teach it to us. What Jesus experienced on the cross was the exact opposite of that. When you look at Jesus on the cross, what, he, what he's doing voluntarily, though he is a being of infinite power, glory, wealth, beauty, all that kind of stuff, what Jesus is doing is he's giving up all of that for us. And it looked, to all of the, the bystanders that day, it looked like defeat. But what we know from, from three days later in 2,000 years of church history is that what Jesus did on the cross, though it looked like the, uh, the defeat was actually the greatest victory in history. So when Paul says that Jesus disarmed these evil forces, these demonic forces that enslave us, By what he did on the cross, what he means is that when you and I, when we take the cross into the center of our lives, meaning when we center our lives on a crucified Messiah, what that does is that liberates us in at least two ways. First off, it frees us from being controlled by the things that the world tells us we should live for, the things that we're worthless if we don't have. Let me just real quick give you kind of three examples of of what that looks like. For, For instance... When you see, when you go back to the cross, you know, when you're in a situation when you've been offended, you don't feel like people are treating you right, you're, you're, you're worried about your image and are people, you know, respecting you and you feel like you're being snubbed all the time. When you go back to the cross and you see Jesus giving up his glory for you so that you could find the glory that you're looking for in him, that, that frees you to move through life no longer obsessed with getting glory yourself because you know you already have it in Jesus. That's freedom. <clears throat> Another example. When you, when you go back to the cross and you see what Paul says, that though Jesus was rich, he became poor for you so that in Jesus you and I could have the one kind of wealth that truly enriches us, what that does, the more that it becomes real to us and we build our lives on it, is it frees us from the grip that material possessions would otherwise have on us, and it frees us to use our, our wealth... Uh, to do for others what God through Christ has done for us, which is ultimately the most fulfilling kind of life there is. It's the life for which we've been made. It frees us. Last thing here, when you go back to the cross and you see that Jesus, though he was the most beautiful being in existence, a being of infinite beauty, when you understand what Philippians 2 is getting across, that Jesus Christ humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and he gave up his beauty for you, Isaiah says he wasn't even pleasant to look at. Jesus didn't even come down here as an aesthetically pleasing-looking human being. And on the cross, he lost cosmically his beauty for you and I so that when you give your life to Jesus from that moment forward when God looks at you, he sees the beauty of his own son. When you take that into the center of your life, it frees you from being enslaved by your culture standard of beauty, which I don't really think anybody actually feels like they live up to. That, that frees you from no longer having to look a certain way and freaking out if you don't. It frees you from, from being completely destroyed if you see that you gain five pounds or there's a new wrinkle or gravity starts to make a fool of you like it's eventually going to make fools of us all. It, it breaks you out of that system of living. It liberates you. So, so, so not only on the one hand does the cross liberate us from being enslaved by the value system of this world, it, it does something even greater than that. It liberates us from being enslaved by the fear of death. I don't know if you've ever read this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. That's a reference to the previous verses. I just want to draw your attention to what comes next. It says, So that through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and, and hear this, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. What that verse is saying is that regardless of what front you and I can put up or anybody else, in our natural state, we are terrified at the thought of our own mortality, terrified of it. Because there's, there's this sense in the human heart. Scripture talks about our hearts condemn us. There's this sense, there's this part of us that knows that we haven't done enough, that we haven't experienced enough, that we haven't worked hard enough, that we haven't been enough that there's this standard that we haven't lived up to. So we're terrified at the thought of death and judgment and finding out what we quietly know to be true, which is that we have not lived up. And what this is saying in Hebrews is that when you take the cross of Jesus Christ into your life and you think through the implications of what it actually means that God became a man, lived for you, died for you, and was raised on the third day for you, what that does is it frees you from being enslaved by the fear of death because you know that in Jesus the absolute worst thing that can happen to you in this life, which is your death in Jesus, death itself has no power over you except to make you into something more glorious than you can at present even imagine. And the more that that becomes real to us, this side of eternity, the more that we become free to live the lives that God has called us to live as we were meant to live. So, those are three reasons. Christians believe that Jesus absolutely had to die. It was necessary for a personal transformation, for our legal justification, and for our final liberation. And so what Jesus is saying here, in in essence, in this passage, is he's saying, yeah, I'm a king. I am the king. I'm the final king to end all kings. But Jesus chases that with, but I'm a king unlike any you've ever seen before because I'm not going to a throne. I'm going to a cross. That's the kind of king he is. Secondly, Let's take a few minutes uh, asking the question, so what do we have to go through in order to follow this king? And the answer is in verse 34. It says, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What Jesus is saying here is just as logical as it gets. He's saying, because I'm a king that's going to a cross, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to go to a cross yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, That's probably a phrase, especially if you were raised in the church, you've heard that idea before, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. The question is, what does Jesus actually mean by that? What am I signing up for when I sign up to follow Jesus? What am I likely to expect if I follow him? And in everything that Jesus is after this, he explains what he means. That's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time walking through. it, Based on this passage Taking up your cross means three things. It means getting a new identity, it means getting a new agenda, and it means getting a new hope. We're going to walk through those three ideas, and then we'll be done. First off, taking up your cross means getting a new identity. In verses 35 and 36, very famous verses, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? So I emphasize that word life there. Jesus used that, that word four times in two verses. And when you have that kind of repetition, uh, Jesus is clearly trying to make a point there. The, the, uh, the Greek word that's translated life is the Greek word psyche, from which we get the term, our term, psychology. And, and the word, it, it's kind of got a... a um, It's a difficult word to translate into one single English word because it has a wealth of meaning. But what it it basically means, this concept of life, it basically refers to your identity. It it refers to your selfhood, your personality. It's it's the intangible elements of you that make you distinct and valuable as an individual. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about your life. And, And if I can, let me just draw your attention. Jesus is not saying here... He's not saying he, that, he, that he wants you to lose the sense that you have an individual self. That's Eastern philosophy. That's not Christianity. And if Jesus had meant that, if that's what Jesus desired, then he simply would have said, you must lose yourself, to quote the modern philosopher Eminem. That's not what Jesus said. He said, uh, I've got some Eminem fans in the house. I, I was putting myself on the line there. I didn't know if you guys were going to get me. appreciate those giggles, all right? All right, but that's not what Jesus says. Ultimately, Jesus' stated desire in this passage, he wants you to find yourself. Jesus wants you to have a robust sense of yourself that is unmovable and unshakable in the ups and downs of life. But what Jesus is saying here is that the way that you will, the way that you will find that self that, that he has for you, that he desires for you, as a follower of him, is unlike any other culture's idea of finding an identity. Stated differently, Jesus is saying the way that you get a sense of self as one of his followers runs completely against the grain of what comes natural to the human heart. To explain what I mean, look at verses 36 and 37. It says, for what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? Here's what Jesus is saying here. Every culture in human history, every culture points to certain things, and it tells you that if you gain those things, then you will, you'll be worth something. Then you can finally feel like, like you have significance, like you matter, like you're a person of value. In traditional cultures like Marx, um, it would say that you're nobody unless you gain a, a, a family and children. Most traditional cultures, maybe all traditional cultures operated that way. Uh, in our modern secular culture, we place less and less value on the family, more and more value on the career, and so the messaging in our culture tends to be that you're nobody unless you get this highly successful career and all of the status and the recognition and the influence and the money and power that comes with it. But the point is, every single culture says that you achieve your identity by gaining certain things. And so the, the, the purpose of life, basically is go out and earn those things. What Jesus is saying here I don't know if you've ever read it this way but Jesus' whole point here is that that game will never work. It doesn't have any winners. What Jesus is saying is that even if you gained the whole world, if you manage to get your hands on everything that your culture tells you, get this and then you'll have made it, then you will have arrived, then you'll be valuable, then you'll be enough, even if you gained all of those things, it still would not be enough to give you a sense of self. It still wouldn't be enough to tell you who you are. Because no matter matter what you build your identity on, if anything threatens those things that you look to to give you your identity, and let's talk about some of the common ones in our culture, meaning if, if you build your identity on your marriage, on the fact that you have a great relationship with your spouse and your spouse loves and respects you, if you build your identity on, on your children, on them getting a great education and making good choices and, and becoming successful themselves so that you can feel like you're a good parent, if you build your identity on your, your, your career, if you build it on your wealth, on the lifestyle that you can afford, if you build it on your physical body, What happens is is no matter what you build your identity off of, um, if anything goes wrong with any of those things, meaning if your marriage takes a hit, or if your kids start going down a path that's destructive and you realize there's nothing you can do about it because you can't control them, you can't live their life for them. If your career takes a hit, if you experience a profound financial reversal, you can't still afford the lifestyle that you used to be able to afford, if your body begins to break down, as all of our bodies eventually will, then what happens when you hide your identity in those things, when those things begin to fall apart, those things don't just begin to fall apart, you begin to fall apart. And you, you completely want, you, what, what happens is you lose your sense of self. And I'm not an expert, this is just my opinion, so feel free to disregard this, but I'm convinced that so much of what we label as an existential crisis or a midlife crisis, or, or a psychological break, or just anxiety and depression and general malaise, what that actually is, that's a human being discovering that they have, they have put their identity in something that was na- not safe to hide their identity in. And they're finding out it didn't work. They're finding out what Jesus is saying is true. So when you begin to understand that, you begin to get a sense of how radical Jesus' teaching here really is. Because Jesus is not saying, I want you to abandon your your culture's way of earning an identity and earn it in a new way. He's saying something far more radical than that. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me and you want to have your life transformed by me, Jesus is saying, I want you to abandon the concept that you can earn your identity altogether. And I want you to trust me enough to rest your identity entirely, not on anything that you do or don't do, Not in anything that you have or don't have, but on, Jesus says, on me and on this thing called the gospel. Now, I I don't know if it's significant to you, but it's noteworthy to me that Jesus did not just say, if you want to be my follower, build your identity on me. Because, this is going to sound strange, that doesn't work. Meaning, no one has ever experienced deep level transformation Because they woke up one day and said, you know what? I've tried to build my identity and all these other things. Now I'm going to build my identity in God. So let me start going to church and praying and reading my Bible and not doing bad stuff and doing more good stuff. All that is is a religious version of the game that everybody else is playing, and it's the fastest way to become a Pharisee. What Jesus is saying here is if you really want to experience deep-level transformation as one of his followers, you need to learn to look at the gospel which the gospel is simply the good news of what Jesus has done for us so that we can be saved. That's all the gospel is. Because what happened when we, when we look at the gospel, when we look at what Jesus has done for us, the gospel's showing us that on the cross, Jesus lost his identity as the true child of God so that you could have an identity as a true child of God. What happened on the cross is Jesus took your identity as a sinner on himself so that he could give you his identity in the eyes of the Father. And the whole, the, the whole idea behind this way of life Jesus invites us to follow him into that we call Christianity is the more that a person understands that and the more that they drive that reality into the center of their life primarily through, through prayer and through worship and through spiritual disciplines, what happens is it frees them from needing to have all of these other things in order to tell them who they are and to make them feel like they're a person of value. And what happens as we grow in an understanding of that more and more over time is that that gives us an identity that first and foremost allows us to weather storms that would have normally upended us. It creates a steadfastness in us to the point that success no longer goes to our head, failure no longer goes to our hearts. It allows us to receive criticism with grace. It allows us to genuinely forgive other people who have wounded us. And maybe more than anything else, it allows us to be the kind of person that moves through life and can admit when we're wrong and repent without it feeling like we're dying on the inside. Because we know in the core of our being that our identity has been secured for us by the finished work of Jesus, and it depends entirely on him and not at all on our day-to-day performance. There's a freedom there that cannot be found anywhere outside of Jesus' words here. According to Jesus... Getting that new identity, it's radical. It's unlike any culture's way of doing identity formation. And in so many ways, it feels like taking up a cross. That's the first thing that taking up your cross means. Secondly, the other ones are going to be shorter than that. Secondly, taking up your cross means it means getting a new agenda. So we we kind of touched on it earlier, but you notice that when when Peter hears Jesus' plans to go to Jerusalem, not to conquer but to be defeated, uh, that uh, it, it offends Peter, it infuriates Peter to the point that he's taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. And the reason for that is because Peter had an agenda and he was looking to Jesus to be a means to that end. Peter's, P- Peter's idea was Jesus is gonna move from strength to strength and that as one of Jesus' followers, he would as well. So when he begins to understand what we all eventually have to come to terms with, which is that Jesus does not, Jesus' primary goal is to not serve our agenda he begins to rebuke Jesus, and, and before any of us try to look down on him or you know, chuckle at him or how could you be that stupid, I think if we're honest, when we look at Peter's interaction with Jesus here, we see ourselves. Because in the beginning, when, when people first come to God, we all come to God with selfish reasons. Anybody who does any amount of growing in Christianity is able to look back and realize that the things that brought them, that drove them to God in the first place were primarily self-centered. But I've, I've talked to people as a pastor, I've, I've, I've talked to guys who, the reason that they started coming to church is because their wife said they were, they were, they were going to divorce them if they didn't. Not the purest motive to come to church, but whatever, it got them in the door. And they usually don't admit that until they actually give their life to Jesus, because it's a tough thing to admit. But people come to God for all kinds of things like that. Some people start reading their Bible or praying or investigating because they're lonely, or because they're fearful, they're dealing with anxiety, with depression, they have some problem in their life and they hope God's going to solve it. It's, it's less than a pure motive. But one of the many things about God, one of the many amazing things about God, is that he doesn't wait for us to have perfect, impure love toward him before he decides to meet us. If he did, he wouldn't meet with any of us. He meets us even in the midst of that. But I say all this to say, one of the ways that you know you've had a genuine encounter with the real Jesus Rather than a figment of your imagination, a projection of yourself, is that you begin to come to terms with what Peter's beginning to come to terms with here. You you begin to see how shoddy your motives have been, and, and more than anything, you begin to understand that Jesus Christ is not here to be your errand boy. Jesus Christ is not your servant, He's not your assistant you can't tame him, you can't control him, you can't steer him, and you can't bargain with him because we have nothing to bargain with in the presence of the king of kings to whom we owe our entire existence. And so the, the, the second idea here is that taking up our cross means getting a new agenda where it stops being about all the things that I hope Jesus gives me and it becomes more and more just about Jesus, the king who died so that I could live. It becomes more and more about knowing him and serving him and loving him, not because he's going to give me anything that I really want, but for his own sake, which is the same kind of love that he demonstrated for us at Calvary. So taking up our cross is about getting a new identity. It's about getting a new agenda. But thirdly, and this is the last last idea today, it's about getting a new hope. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, "Then Jesus said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power.'" Some people have read that uh, and taken it to mean that Jesus is saying that that generation won't pass away until Jesus returns to earth, which that can't be what Jesus means. Number one, because it didn't happen, and number two, because God's people have cherished the promise here in this verse well after this generation that was that was alive during that time came and went. Most commentators would tell you that this this promise that Jesus offers here is about the fact Jesus is telling his disciples that they would see all throughout their lives, they would see the kingdom of God advance in stages before their very eyes. Now, the first fulfillment of this promise takes place literally right after this in an event called the Transfiguration, which we're going to talk about next week. The next time the disciples saw this was on that first Easter Sunday when they saw a dead man come back to life. Then they saw it 50 days after that on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and this movement known as the church was born. And, the, and the, those disciples saw the kingdom of God advance all throughout their lives as they saw men and women have their lives transformed by Jesus and Christianity grow and spread despite it had all these reasons to fail. And it was led by uneducated fishermen talking about a dead Jewish rabbi that died and came back to life. There's no reason that Christianity should have got off the ground. It did because the kingdom of God was advancing in human history. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is that one day the kingdom of God will arrive here in full. That Jesus Christ will finish what he started. That when he returns, he will wipe all creation clean from death and darkness and sickness and suffering. He's going to wipe every tear away from every eye and that God's people will stand with him totally, eternally, fully, and finally united with him forever. And no one and nothing can take that away. But... The point of this passage, the whole point of this passage, we're almost done, and this is where it's going to get personal, so I hope as we, as we close here today, I hope that this encourages somebody. The whole point of this passage is that before the kingdom of God, if you hear nothing else today, please hear this. Please hear this. The whole point of Jesus' words here is that before the kingdom of God advances in power, it enters the world in weakness. That's the whole point. The way that it works in Jesus's economy, the way that his kingdom will end, it will end in victory, but it will begin with what looks to everyone like a defeat. It will end in glory. It begins with humility. It will end in joy. It begins with sorrow. It will end with a crown, but it begins with a cross. And not only, not only is that the way that the power of the kingdom of God has advanced in human history, that's how the power of the kingdom of God advances in your and my life. Now here's where this gets personal. I'll walk through this brief idea, I'll read you a quote, and we'll conclude. For those of us here today, maybe you find yourself in a position in life where you have been been brought low, You've been humbled because nothing in your life at present has turned out the way that you wanted it to, the way that you hoped it would. You know, all of your effort seems like it's been in vain and you are, there's really nothing to do. You're just brought to terms with your own weakness, your own inability, your own insufficiency, your own helplessness, your own dependency. If that's where you find yourself this morning, in any area of your life, then what this passage of Scripture was recorded to communicate to you is that as much as you hate where you are today, as much as you would have rather God led you around this than through this, and as much as you would love to fast forward through this period of time in your life, what this passage of Scripture means for you is that you are blessed right where you stand. Because the way that it works in Jesus' economy is that it's when God leads us through situations that lead us to the end of ourselves, it's then and only then that the power of the kingdom of God can advance in us and through us in ways that would never otherwise be possible. It's the crucifixion that leads to the resurrection. So it was with Jesus, so it is with us. No one could have phrased this idea better than Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he said, when I am weak, then I'm strong. So that anybody who finds themselves in that, that place this morning, where your path has a cross right in front of you, you can't get over it or underneath it or around it, there's nothing to do but embrace it, take it up and start walking with it. If that's where you find yourself this morning, I want to end today by reading you my favorite quote from the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. This quote has been a great source of comfort to me many times in my life, and I hope it has the same effect for somebody on the other side of this this morning. Worship team, you can come on up. Believer, if your inheritance be a lowly one, you should be satisfied with your earthly portion, for you may rest assured that it is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river. Now in one part of the stream there's a sandbank. Should someone ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line? His answer would be, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep to the deep channel. So it may be, you would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little. You are put there by the loving husbandman because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You were placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by myself will I am pierced through with many sorrows. Be content with such things as you have since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your own daily cross. It is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. Down busy self and proud impatience, it is not for you to choose, but for the Lord of love. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm sure there's people listening to this now who have quite a cross to bear and it feels like a crushing burden and they're wondering how they're gonna keep moving forward. Jesus, I'd ask that to anybody in that place this morning and really to all of us, that you would open our eyes to see the Savior, the Messiah who was crucified for us who took on the ultimate burden of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame, so that we could be made right with our Father, restored to the relationship for which we've been made. Lord Jesus, please help us to bear our cross as well in your footsteps, knowing that you went to the cross resulting in your death so that our crosses only result in greater life. Please help us to know this, more deeply than we did when we came in this morning. Please help us to walk through whatever you're calling us to walk through in a way that honors you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the suffering Messiah, who died so that we could live, we ask these things. God's people said, amen.